Dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Issue 8, The Sound of Her Wings. I'm joined by two killer co-hosts, Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome, welcome. And Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Hello. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown where we let you know who created the issue. Then the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and we follow that up with the deep dive, when we really get into everything that happened. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and our non-Morpheus character. So there you have it, six sections to get through, so let's get going. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. For issue eight, The Sound of Her Wings, we have writer, as usual, the illustrious Neil Gaiman. For penciling, we have Mike Dringenberg. Inking, we have Malcolm Jones III. Such a stately name. Coloring, we have Daniel Vazo. Lettering, Todd Klein. Associate editing by Art Young. And then head editor-in-chief, Karen Berger. All right. So where we are in the story, Dream has successfully managed to get his pouch, his ruby, and his mask, his helm of state, after losing all three of those items when he was captured way back in issue number one. And in the most recent issue, he battled in various ways, Dr. Destiny, uh, which is the character who had his ruby. And so now he is in a much better place, you would think, where he has all of these items. He's back. He's gotten his revenge in the different ways that he was going to. And so you'd think he'd be in a really good spot, ready just to, you know, go back to the dreaming and, you know, fix everything that got broken. That's the catch up. Sean? So... In this issue, we start with a despondent dream sits feeding pigeons in New York's Washington Square Park. I had to look up where that arch thing was because I don't know, like New York like that, but felt good about doing that. A young woman in black approaches and sits next to him. She is bright, playful, and spunky. She is, we slowly learn, Dream's sister, the personification of death. Dream reveals to her that he's felt deflated since he's completed his quest. Recovering his tools had given him a sense of purpose beyond his function as the king of dreams, and without it now, he feels empty. Death, like any big sister should, hits him in the head with a loaf of bread and berates him for his self-centeredness in not contacting her and his self-pitying attitude. Dream then accompanies his sister as she performs her duties, visiting a dying Jewish fiddle player in his apartment, an aspiring stand-up comedian who is electrocuted by a faulty mic, knock on wood, an infant who dies in the crib, along with victims of overdoses, of violence, of illness, and accidents. Each of them greet death first with fear and rejection, though they eventually accept that their time in the world has come to an end. With each mortal they visit, Dream stands by as death pulls them close, he listens and hears the sound of her wings as she guides them from the land of the living. He considers the skill and dedication she brings to her role, even though mortals fear her. His spirits lift, and he begins to consider the value of his responsibilities in a new light. He thanks her for the gift she's given him, and they part ways, Dream reinvigorated and prepared to rebuild his kingdom. And as Dream ponders that, we'll let you ponder this. We'll be right back. Okay, so we really see a full, I mean, almost mini character transformation here with Dream engaging, you know, with his sister death and kind of, you know, everything that comes with that. And 
just they were able to do so much here in just you know a little more than 20 pages to take a character that had been um really a very you know a very stereotypical kind of story so far right i mean you know he lost everything and had to get it all back you know had to do some revenge uh but for the most part you know he hasn't he hadn't grown as a character from the start to you know from issue 1 through issue 7 he really had just um gotten back to his original you know power level that he would normally be at um and and here we see him as as you said Sean at, at the beginning he's despondent and he's kind of aloof and is just you know sour pussing it up yeah it's, it's, what i yeah what what i love about this is is very like you know byronic right like like mm. uh the poet lord byron is this like sort of archetypal figure of uh of the you know mournful aloof loner standing on a on a cliff's edge in the rain and 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 yearning you know you don't know what for what just just yearning mm. right uh and i love <laughs> i love that dream is able to like we're seeing that side of him for the first time in this issue uh because he's able because you know he's Gaiman is able to contrast like death and him right and it's 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 just great it's it's great for the same reason that like the Lisa episodes are often the best ones of the Simpsons because they make everyone else seem weirder because of how mm. typically normal Lisa is. So that like the, the death issues kind of make dream be like more mopey, uh, more sort of ridiculous and immature than we would normally experience him as like a hero. Right. Sorry to jump in there. I just, I, yeah, what you were saying just made me think like, Oh yeah, I really liked this. Oh, that's great. That's like, it's like what's supposed to happen. That's amazing. That was natural. <laughs> we didn't even edit that to make it sound better. So, um, but, but actually let's actually kind of zoom in on the very first encounter where death. So, just as a quick reminder, right? So Death and Dream are going to go visit a whole bunch of people that are dying because this is something that Death does because she feels like it's important to be there uh, and to to witness and to kind of see and to remind Dream that, you know, the endless serve all creation. Uh, they don't serve themselves. And so I think the the very first one here with the Romani, you know, and, um, and kind of in walking through that would be a really, really great place to start, actually. Yeah, this is a really, I, I feel like I, I say this all the time, so I apologize if I sound like a broken record, but this is just a really beautiful encounter. I love this exchange between death and he's he's not actually Romani, he's he's Jewish. He's, he, he refers to himself as an old Jew dying lonely in New York. Um, so, you know, speaking of, of Byronic, he's a little, um, he's got a touch of the romance <laughs> to him as well, but uh part of the reason that i love this character in particular uh one is because we find him you know playing the fiddle to himself and he's playing this old song um that is really a a reference to a a song that is from an old book from 1876 called The Life and Adventures of a Cheap Jack. Do you guys know what a cheap jack is? What? No, I had no idea. I think I'm yeah, going to start calling yeah, so, everyone a cheap jack. <laughs> so a cheap jack is a, is a hawker of um, already owned goods. Um, so, you know, in in the book, the cheap jack in question, that's that's kind of being followed uh, on, his, on his job, if, if you can call it that he's selling things like an old pocket watch that he then, he, as he's selling, he's like almost like you're watching QVC on the street where he is talking, he's describing the goods he has. So one of them is like a watch where he's like talking about the brass it's made of and, and all this stuff. And also you can whack people with it. So it like doubles as a timepiece and a weapon um, and all like candlesticks, all these other things that he just kind of gathers. So if, to reference another piece of literature, if you've read of any of uh, Patrick Rothfuss' work and how he describes um, tinkers and tradesmen, um, you you never want to cross a tinker because they have not only all the stuff you can buy from them, but also they have all the gossip. Uh, that's kind of how a cheap jack is illustrated in this book, uh, "The Life and Adventures of Cheap Jack." Did I see the did I see the bedroom door crack when you mentioned? <laughs> 
Alan, get out of here. <laughs> Alan. <laughs> this isn't for you, uh, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> but so this this song that he's singing that we when we enter in, we see him playing and, and singing to himself. Can you rocker Romani? You know, he he mentions, you know, as as they walk in, Death says, Yes, I can patter Romani, Harry, can you? And then Harry says, uh, can I patter Romani? Not so good, but I can fake a Bosch. It means I pay, play the fiddle. I'm not really Romani. So the funny thing about this song is that people kind of assume that it's in Romani language or Romani sort of can't. Can't being like um a particular language specified to a group or profession, uh, but it's not Romani at all. It references Romani, but it's actually in Flash. And Flash is mentioned in the song. Flash is London thieves can't. So like back in the 1800s, the thieves and, you know, rogues and vagabonds of London city streets would speak in this can't, this what's called Flash. And so everything that's referenced in the song is in this lake this coded language that they had the hardest time uncoding at the time and why they sort of ran London because no one knew what they were talking about, not realizing they were speaking to one another about the jobs they were going to be doing. So I'm just going to sort of so quick, cool. yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to quick sort of decipher the whole song. The whole song goes, I can beat a bull or fight a cock. I can a pigeon fly. I'm up to all those knowing tricks while I, my hardware cry. Can you rocker Romani? Can you patter flash? Can you rocker Romani? Can you fake a bosh? Stow your gab and goffrey. To every fakement, I'm a fly. I never takes no fluffery, for I'm a regular axe my eye. So that first line, I can beat a bull or fight a cock. So I can beat like the biggest of them, the hulking guys that flank you, or I can beat the leader. I can a pigeon fly if they're specifically saying I can a blue pigeon fly. That means that I can steal the lead from church roofs. I steal things like the metals, the precious metals, like in your pipes and in your, in your, um, in the sort of ventilation systems for all of the chimneys and such. I can take that. I'm all, I'm up to all these knowing tricks. So I'm canny. While I, my hardware cry. This one was harder to translate only because there were a bunch of disparate um, translations on the language here in various like flash sort of glossaries. But this one, what I could kind of piece together is either the hardware they're referring to is the ammunition that's being used, if there is any ammunition being used, and that's just making a loud noise while they defend themselves, or there's others, some other kind of weaponry, or it's the stuff they're hawking later. And that's more my guess. It's probably the stuff that they're hawking later that they're sort of telling other people about. Can you rock a Romani? So can you speak Romani? Um, and you'd see a lot of these groups, both thieves and vagabonds and traveling troops, uh, thespians, all coming through larger cities. You know, their, their languages and their cants would, would blend together. So you would have references to one or the other. It just sounds, for this one, Flash probably came first, referencing Romani, and then possibly Romani groups then adopted it and added verses to it. So you might see other additions to the song. Can I patter Flash? So you can, can you speak Flash? Uh, can you actually hang with us? So it's almost like a test. Like, are you one of us? Do you understand what we're saying? Uh, can you rock a Romani? Can you fake a Bosch? So Harry tells us that, can you play the violin? Can you play the fiddle? Stow your gab and goffrey, so shut up. <laughs> Stop being such a tryhard. You know, you're making yourself look like an idiot. Um, to every fakement, I'm a fly. So anything that is used in deception, I'm a snag it. I, I can use it. I will take it. That's the thing I'm, I'm attracted to grabbing, is anything that can be used in deception in some way. Um, I never take snow fluffery, so, you know, I, I don't take anything that, that the people I'm with would ever want. I don't take anything too fancy. It's not useful to me in that sense. And then I'm a regular axe my eye. And axe my eye is somebody who's just very canny or tri tricky. Um, someone who, who might be able to play tricks or get away with a lot. So if you think of um, the Artful Dodger from Oliver Twist, he'd be an axe my eye. So it's just a really fun, like, inclusion in this scene because it's not something you'd really it's just it's so esoteric uh that you know i don't i i was i would assume that neil gaiman got it from 
The Life and Adventures of a Cheap Jack, how he would come across the book and decide to reference it. I mean, I guess weirder things have happened, but I do find it really <laughs> funny that this is what's pulled. Uh, and it's just kind of a fun, colorful moment. You know, it's a it's a really cool it's a really cool character moment. It's it's one thing that I do miss from the show. I wish this were the song that was being played and not whatever classical piece was being played in the in the television show. I agree so much. I forgot how much I love this Harry, you know, yes. like, like, it's like, I love his, his, his big old gut hanging out. And I love yeah. how he's laying there and I love his torn up couch mm-hmm. and his, his Matisse print in the background yeah. and stuff. He's so great. And that song is so cool. I had no idea. I was like, I sort of always vaguely wondered about it, but, um, that is awesome. I want to read a book about, I want to read the cheap check now. I genuinely you really can, do. Well, and if you're interested, if, if anybody wants to read it, you can find it on Google books and you can read the whole thing. Oh. Um, it's, it's available. And it's honestly, it's really interesting. You might have to get around some of the, some of the language, um, but it's, I wouldn't say it's a steep learning curve. I think if you took it, you know, at a chapter at a time, you'd adapt fine. Um, and it is, it's just really entertaining. It's just very, it's a very interesting sort of look into that life. And it colors like the history of the character so much, doesn't it? Like this little added context to me, it like, it, I mean, like, like I was just describing, they do a great job of presenting a life lived in, you know? Mm-hmm. But hearing all that, like, it makes you want to see this guy playing in those restaurants and clubs as a kid oh, and yeah. picking up this lingo and these, um, and these songs and things like that. And it just, it fills out his life so much and it makes his passing so much more meaningful, you know? Right, I mean, you get, exactly. You get introduced to him on page 14, top left panel, and he has, and he is passed away by the bottom, uh, the bottom right of page 15. And that's it. And it's, and it's very, it's, it's really impactful. And it's, it's such a way to tell a story, you know, where they also didn't, you know, we also didn't need them though to spend three pages of flashbacks of like showing him dancing jigs and all that kind of stuff. It's like, we got it. Like we, he can just mm-hmm. lay here and just talk and, and, and get to that point. I have to wonder what that decision-making process was. I feel a little ripped off that that wasn't in the show. I know. <laughs> I really, because it was so, it was such a, I mean, it was a beautiful scene, but it felt so sterile. And this yes. does not feel sterile. This feels like life, you know? Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I th- I think the show Harry w- seemed very kindly and approachable, but it you're right. Sterile's a good word for it. Almost like he was living in a in an assisted living facility already, so a lot of that personality was stripped apart from the one photograph we see, and then you know him having his viola or violin. Forgive me, or- orchestra people. Again, forgive her again. Please, please, please forgive me again. <laughs> I will never be able to tell the difference. I'm a drummer, um, but. Uh, but with with this character, I mean, you do you're right. You do get a lot of life. You get a lot of color. And as far as you know, knowing a character for such a brief time, you just see how much life is packed into those few pages in this brief exchange. And so you know, we're sitting with this one uh, member of the endless, and we we only have so much from him as far as real understanding about what his life or his existence is like but then in this one mortal being we have so very much it's a treasure trove of existence and it's just funny seeing them held in in tension in the same page i think the thing and i'm sean i'm hoping that you can help us out here uh that feels like it needs some to be filled in a bit is this new character that we have of death death is something that is seen in all cultures through all time and in, in probably even in the places that we don't even think to look. Um, but what what is this death that we have here in front of us um, in issue eight? Ben, I'm very glad you asked. <laughs> so we have this death, our death, fashion icon, breakout character, cool big sister, everybody's crush. Like there can be no doubt that this is the most memorable character from the Sandman, the series. This was the star, you know, when this series was, was originally released. This is, I don't know Most if Most importantly, 
Joy's Halloween costume. Yes, yes. My <laughs> so my my wife read uh, this series very early on in our relationship, and as soon as she came upon death, like that has been her Halloween costume pretty much every year because, like, in a general look, she's she's pretty close, you know. If she puts on a little little sort of makeup and things like that, like the, her, her, you know, she can pull it off really well. Um, I could not do, I couldn't, couldn't do the Sandman or something like that. Uh, just, it just wouldn't work for me, but it works for her perfectly. <laughs> we should totally go to the endless. We should figure out a way to find seven of us to go for the endless, Sean. That'd be so much fun. Oh man. Okay. All right. We're going to have to figure uh, we'll, out. We'll pick a pit in that. We'll pick a pit in that. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll uh, <laughs> let us know in the, uh, in the Discord, who's who here? Or don't. Do I want to see that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, okay, let's talk about death. Um, and I want to say here that I'm indebted to Highbender's Sandman companion uh, for a lot of the really great context here. I've mentioned the book before. If you can find a copy, it's not in print, but they are available online. Um, it's just a wealth of, of knowledge about the series. So... Death was born in Gaiman's very early notes on the series. So, like, as soon as he got approval um, from Dick Giordano and Karen Berger for a monthly book, he says that the very first things he wrote were, one, Gates of Horn and Ivory. That came up first. Okay. And then, Brother to Death. He initially imagined the series as being about three brothers. Sleep, Dream, and Death. Like, can you imagine, like, what a different series this would be <laughs> if it were about three brothers? I just feel like that's sitting there for someone just to take and go with. I don't know. I don't have to read about more brother conflicts. I got that. And... No, what if, what if they all have a good relationship with their mom and dad, though? And they just all get along, and it's just like... Yeah! What if they're just, like, palling around, <laughs> hanging out on the English countryside, you know, drinking some tea, eating some biscuits? That's, that's, that's good drama right there. <laughs> it's just that'll, one that'll issue is just them riffing on the long sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think there is like a, uh, you know, it's a sort of a common trope that like sleep is the cousin of death or sleep uh -huh. is related to death in some way. So I can see where it's coming from, but I am very glad that uh, very soon after writing these notes, he added another note that said, death should be his sister, lady death. Yes. There actually is already a comic book character, Lady Death. Uh, very weird, like, she's 90s. Like blind with, like, wraps around her eyes? No, she is a extremely unrealistically proportioned pale white figure well, who wears a black it. bikini. And I don't know, she kills monsters oh, or yes. what? I've never read is. the book. But um, I remember seeing it all over comic shops uh, when I was a very small child. I can see why they would put this all over. I just, I, <laughs> yeah. I have no context nor insight into this, but I already dislike it very much. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you and I saw the same one at Sorry, the same time. I'm just going to interrupt real quick. Gonna real, uh, real, there is a 2004 animated movie called Lady Death. Based on a comic book series, a woman burned at the stake in 15th century Sweden actually is Satan's daughter and plots revenge against him. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of rad, actually. Like, it does look rad. Yeah. It looks super rad. Okay, anyway. maybe I shouldn't have been so quick uh, to dismiss it. But it's definitely like I would have felt weird buying that comic book. <laughs> because yeah. they're, all the covers are just like girl in bikini and like a bunch of blood and stuff. I would have felt weird carrying that to the to the counter. Um, yeah, so as the character and the series took shape, he kind of realized that most representations of death, uh, as, you know, Ben, you discussed um, in the intro, are kind of scary, humorless implacable people he wouldn't really want to spend any time with. But since Dream already embodied most of those traits, he could flip expectations by making death, uh, according to him, funny, cool, and nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So really just like, you know, going where there was kind of room to go there. Um, he was also apparently inspired by the Kabbalah, which according to Neil says, the angel of death is so beautiful that when you see her, you fall in love and you love her so hard that your soul leaves your body drawn out through your eyes. And he says, I always thought that was a lovely notion. <laughs> Which is like I, I can see it. I can see that being a lovely notion. It's very, it's lovely in a very Neil Gaiman sort of way. Mm-hmm. Is that canon, Ashley, for the Angel of Death? Is that a? Is that I canon? mean, that yeah, a... it's in the Kabbalah. Um, there, there there's go. a lot that's. It's like they're esoteric teachings, just to try to explain mm. the relationships between things. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting read. Mm, very cool. So you know, while Neil came up with the unique take on the character and her charm. Really, I would argue it's Dringenberg's design and his figure work and his visual storytelling ability that turned her into an icon. Um, You know, Neil initially imagined this sort of pale statuesque blonde uh, that he describes as looking like the singer Nico on the cover of her Chelsea Girl album. So if you're familiar with Nico at all, see that would be like a very different look uh it's a great album it's uh i think produced and at least partially written by lou reed so it's 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 good if you haven't listened to it you should um but it's definitely a very different look uh dringenberg instead kind of had his own ideas here and he shared a sketch uh that he did based on a friend of his it's a young ballerina and fashion designer named cinnamon hadley so Dringenberg Dringenberg says, uh, Cinnamon had real star quality in her presence and bearing. She was an ex-ballet dancer with an amazing body. Okay, Mike, all right. Uh, A beautiful heart-shaped face and a memorable haircut and was prone to wandering around with a little black umbrella. I felt Cinnamon had the visual qualities we were looking for, so I drew Death to look pretty much like her. So, you know, and I believe they did actually... Well, I know they did actually publish a photo that was used to reference uh, of Cinnamon Hadley uh, in one issue, and it is pretty exact. It's just this person, a friend of a friend of Mike's. Um, there's a great interview and some photos of Hadley if you want to see it on the blog postpunk.com. Uh, post. And those like, will be in the uh, show notes. <laughs> Like post-punk.com, yeah. Uh, she seems like she was a really cool person. She talks about arriving on the scene uh, at 18 in 1987. She says, I dyed my hair black, bought liquid black eyeliner, and bought my first pack of cigarettes, Camel Lights Hard Pack. I heard about a dance club in Salt Lake called the Palladium. I put my ballet stage makeup on, my little black outfit, and teased my hair as big as I could get it and went to the club. I was in awe. I felt so at home. Everyone was so nice to me, and I thought everyone was so cool. I decided this was the world I wanted to be in. So that's kind of where her look came from, just like a club kid in Salt Lake City in the late 80s. So one day, uh, her friend, Mike Dringenberg, asks if he can use her likeness. And she agreed, but she completely forgets about it until about three years later when she's hanging out with a friend in Houston and he shows her an issue of his favorite comic, The Sandman. She says, When I opened it, I saw a picture of myself staring back at me. And this was, this was like I said, uh, it was one of two photographs that were actually used and they just inked over them. And she says, Oh my God, that's me. I had no idea I was in The Sandman and I have even forgotten about being asked by Mike to use me as the model. Um, so she's very, she's very gracious and cool about it. Um, Cinnamon Hadley unfortunately passed away in 2018 after a long battle with cancer. Um, but she was remembered in some really beautiful tributes from the goth, punk, fashion, and comic book communities. You know, she's gone, but she, Mike Dringenberg, and Neil Gaiman have given us a gift that will live on in the stories. Thanks, Sean, for giving us all that background on how death was created for uh, such an iconic series and really became, you know, the the biggest character really, really coming out of this. Um, so coming down from kind of that higher view and, and diving back in, 
you know, there's really more to kind of pull out of these interactions that that death is having. And so, uh, Ashley, if we kind of come back to that original engagement that death is having, um, you know, when she's talking with Harry, um, one of the things that we see him do is he says, uh, um, excuse me, something I got to say, always used to wonder if it would, but, you know, what they, uh, you know, shmel. And then he goes on to to recite this um, this little um, um, uh, prayer. Poem, prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what, what more can you kind of tell us about that and kind of what's happening there? Yeah, so just to give some context, the prayer that he is mentioning and why he's responding the way he is is because the Shema is like the first prayer that all Jewish kids learn. Um, it's would probably be one of the most important prayers in Jewish liturgy. It said twice a day, once when you wake up, once before you go to sleep, and then ideally said before you before you die. Uh, it's traditionally prayed with your right hand over your eyes. Uh, sometimes thought to increase focus. Other times, I think. To, to suggest or to communicate piety, um, humility. And it's also recited at a climactic moment of the final prayer of the Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Um, in Hebrew, Shema means hear or listen. So it begins with Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So, it begins with that exhortation here, hear this, hear this truth. Um, but again, in Hebrew, hear and listen, it also means like to do this. Like, if you hear somebody, you're, you're going to act upon what you hear. Um, so, all through Hebrew uh, scripture, you'll, you'll see this word come up and it's it's sort of two sides of the same coin. Yes, I've heard your words. Now I'm going to go do, I'm going to demonstrate that I've heard what you said by doing it. So, you know, whenever you have stories of Israel not hearing God, it's really, they're not doing what he's telling them to do. Um, so this is, this is a prayer of, of celebration of who God is, uh, of, uh, you know, expression of both faith and devotion to God and expressing who God is not only to them, but to the world. So hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one that said, you know, right hand placed over your eyes. And then that's kind of declared. And then the next line is blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. And that's more said in undertone to yourself. And then it, it goes on and it describes, again, that first sort of commandment in Deuteronomy uh, 6. So you shall love Adonai, you should love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then, you know, you're supposed to take those instructions, you're supposed to hear them, and you're supposed to do this and charge your day with that command throughout the rest of the day. Hence, doing this at the beginning of your day and at the end of your day. Uh, additionally, then in an, another section, not only saying that you will obey that that you should obey these commandments, but why you should. So, God is the God of all your of your heart and soul. He grants the rain for land. He gives you grain and wine. So basically just expressing that God is the source of all things. So then for this issue, when we're talking about something like death, it's an interesting prayer to include because not only does it express that God is the God of everything, it would also express that God is is greater than death. Um, so then to be expressing that in front of death is kind of an interesting, is an interesting concept. And I, I think it really sort of demonstrates her character when you have this background, because, you know, in, in this world, it's it's a more humanistic sort of approach or worldview. 
So for death to hear that and not be proud, kind of like the rest of her siblings might be, but to take that in stride and to, to really be gracious about that, I think is really lovely and beautiful that she allows all that she cares for, um, all, all of the people that she cares for to express their own perspectives on her services in different ways and to devote themselves to different things and to allow them to sort of encounter what she refers to as the sunless lands in their own way um, without sort of indoctrinating them to what death is or who she is, I think is really lovely. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think the fact that he takes the time to recite this prayer, even though he, he says he was never really sure he would, um, I think is kind of neat. People, people do, uh, I don't know if you've ever been around people who have been in the active stages of dying, but they do tend to suddenly, sort of turn towards old traditions, things they were taught in their childhood, um, and faith practices that they might not have practiced in ages, but suddenly turn to in those moments. It can be a really beautiful moment when, when people are sort of, if they have the time to explore that for themselves, say if they're in a hospice, it can also be really difficult because sometimes people turn to those things in fear and you don't want people who are dying to experience fear while they're doing where they're going to be experiencing something very new, uh, and then explore Cause it's, this is the one thing, this is the final frontier. This is not something that you can know about. Um, yeah. there's not a lot and of science those, behind, like, you know? But, yeah. And that's like one of those like deeply human questions, right? Like mm-hmm. how will I comport myself at the yes. moment where I know my life is at an end? Will I be, you know, uh, courageous and dignified as you might hope, or will I sort of mm-hmm. crumple like a wet tissue or something? Right. And, and I think the fact that Harry considering what I think we can kind of assume is a pretty colorful history, just based off of the songs he knows and, and the way he lives. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. The fact that he receives death with humility um, it, he's not proud. He doesn't come off as really aggressive. Um, he says, excuse me to death. So <laughs> then he can, he can, you know, uh, take a moment to pray. And, and, and I yeah. mean, I guess on one end, it's a little bit sad cause he doesn't even get a chance to finish it. Uh, but you know, he tries and I think that counts for something. If, if in the case of his afterlife, you know, Yahweh is the one that he encounters, uh, based off of this sort of cosmology. But, um, I just think it's a really lovely, gracious scene, uh, and one that is, you know, really cool to have included. So then when you go further into the issue, yeah, so this would be pages 20, 21 and 22. You have dream kind of musing to himself, wondering about humanity and their attitude or posture towards death's gift. And he says that many thousands of years ago, I heard a song in a dream, a mortal song that celebrated her gift. I still remember it. And the song that he references is called The Debate Between a Man and His Soul. Uh, You might also reference it if you decide to look this up later, The Debate Between a Man and His Ba. Um, so this is an Egyptian song or poem. So this is real. This, this is real. some like Neil Gaiman creation. Okay. Cause no, I thought he was, I thought he was giving himself an out, right? Like when he was like, Oh, I heard it in a dream and he could just make up his own thing. So I, I didn't know for sure, but that's interesting. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is interesting. Um, but it's, it's a part of Egyptian wisdom literature, um, And it's this dialogue, it's this poetic dialogue between a man basically trying to wrestle with the concept of his life and the state of his soul and then passing on into death. And it's a pretty short thing, piece of piece of literature. So I'll just read it and then I'll kind of go into a little more detail. Death is before me today, like the recovery of a sick man, like going forth into a garden after sickness. Death is before me today like the odor of myrrh, like sitting under a sail in a good wind. Death is before me today like the course of a stream, like the return of a man from the war galley to his house. Death is before me today like the home that a man longs to see after years spent as a captive. Um, So, you know, some pretty heavy 
sort of themes there. Um, but largely, as we see Dream describe, this is somebody who sees death uh, and, and greets death almost like an old friend. Something to be welcomed, uh, something to be relieved by, finally going home, ultimately. And the original manuscript um, sort of opens with this man sort of crying out that his ba or his soul is disobeying him. Um, <laughs> so again, that sort of wrestling of like, I want to die, let me die. <laughs> um, and, but still, again, we, we have this sort of draw to life. I, I think it's, it's hard even for, for those who are quote unquote ready to die. You know, again, when you've been in hospice for a while, um, that release, there's always going to be, you know, that knee-jerk reaction to hold on to life. Um, and he, the the man in question in this piece of literature expresses a desire to reach the West. So the West is always the sort of depiction of what death is and rebukes his soul for keeping him from death um, and wanting to go to it. So then there's a lot of illustration about what death holds, um, what values there are with regard to, you know, funeral practices and then, you know, what could lead to a bountiful sort of soul harvest or, um, prosperity in death, you know, what can be received in death? How do I prepare myself well for death? And then it ends with, ultimately it ends with the soul encouraging this human to continue, um, to his religious practices his religious observances in that hope of a greater afterlife um, and to continue with life um, really gratefully and to not wish for death's beginning before his time so basically don't, don't rush anything you'll get there value what you have be be gracious and have gratitude for what you have and death will come for you but don't don't sort of pursue this needlessly when you have more to do. Um, so really, if you, if you look at it, not only is it a gratitude and gracious posturing towards death itself, but also for life. It's just a, I would say it's a gratefulness piece, a piece of literature that's, that's bountiful in gratefulness and thankfulness. And so then you see that, I think, illustrated in both the Shema and then this poem, that there's this gratitude, this, there's this humility toward the unknown. Um, and I find it interesting that both are featured here because if you look at the history of the Israelites, you know, they were enslaved by Egypt for a long time. Um, and so then to have these two people groups have their literature showcased in such a, a large and beautiful way, um, equally for the, the sake of, of death in the way she encounters all humanity, I think is a really brilliant move uh, to, again, to sort of emphasize that humanistic bent in this piece in this work specifically as a comic book. And I think that's really well done here. It's balanced in a tasteful way. Um, so I just, yeah, I just really like the fact that it's included. That's really lovely. And Sean, I, I feel like that kind of walks us very gently right into the last topic that you wanted to cover, which is, you know, when the, when Morpheus remarks, why do they fear the sunless lands and trying to, you know, understand, you know, as the embodiment of, you know, dreams and nightmares and stories and trying to put himself in this headspace of, you know, what, what would it mean to die as something that perceivably can't die? Um, uh, I know that was something that you wanted to talk about here. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to think about because like every issue of the Sandman so far has been, it's been a horror comic up to this point, uh, in the mode of guys like Alan Moore and Jamie Delano and, and Len Wein. And this issue marks a powerful break in something really altogether different. Its subject matter is counter to the most, like, basic driving ideas of horror, right? Like, typically the fear generated in a horror series is based on the fear of death. So 
you have to take it as a given that death is bad, death is the enemy, otherwise sort of, you know, what's there to fear? Like, there are other um, sort of downstream things from that, uh, but but that's sort of the core. And here, we meet death, and she's, like, cool and compassionate and helpful and peaceful, and the question both she and Dream return to is, well, you know, what's to be afraid of? I'm not so bad. We get lines like, why do they fear the Sunless Lands? And their attitude to my sister's gift is so strange. And uh, the song that Ashley referenced, like, death is before me today, home that a lot man longs to see, etc. And, you know, later in the series, we are confronted with the idea, I don't think this is very spoilery, that each of the Endless who embody these natural forces from which they take their name also define their opposite, you know, dream defines reality, death defines life, etc. So I wanted to think a little bit about other perspectives on death and the relation of life and death. And I was just doing some like coincidental readings that brought me to Freud and the concept of Thanatos or the death drive. So I'm going to get kind of weird here. So just bear with me. <laughs> so Sigmund Freud, right? Not someone I think of as a major inspiration for Gaiman. Um, he plays with Freudian ideas a little <laughs> bit, like Freudian interpretations of dreams. Like there's a scene uh, from an issue in the next volume where there's an exchange that's something like, uh, oh, you know, they say that when you are dreaming of flying, uh, you're really dreaming of sex. And Dream remarks, well, something like, well, tell me then, what's, what does it mean when you're dreaming of sex? You know, so I, I it's really not um, something that I think influences uh, Gaiman's work closely. Um, and, you know, by the time that Gaiman's writing this, a lot of Freud's theories had become unpopular, either through misunderstanding on behalf of the public or just like had better science. But when, and then Freud is not, you know, I don't think you'd describe Freud as a, as a humanist. You'd be kind of more in the anti-humanist camp. Um, but when we analyze art, I do think Freud is sometimes useful. So let's kind of see how it applies here. So this concept that I mentioned of the death drive, it appears in Freud's book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Freud, man of his time, believes that Human beings are first and foremost beings who seek to maximize pleasure and avoid pain. This is what he calls the pleasure principle, and it's one of the fundamental driving forces of the human mind, perhaps the most important one. So think about like infants, toddlers, children, like who just want what they want. And they don't necessarily understand, well, you know, like, why can't I have that right now? I want it. Give it to me. It's not until later in life that some measure of control is imposed. Some way to say, well, yes, I might want that right now, but actually there is a higher good that will be achieved if I don't do the thing I want to do right away. So that starts as something that's externally imposed. Um, for Freud, it's like the figure of the father, but it may be better to think of it as any externally imposed authority that is threatening and powerful enough to keep this sort of childlike mind from pursuing all of its wants. And at first, uh, we sort of rebel against this authority. You know, we want to be the ones in charge. And this is kind of where the whole Oedipus complex thing comes in. Uh, but the way it works in Freud is that we never overcome this voice of authority, and instead we sort of internalize it. It becomes a part of our psyche, and that part becomes an internal control against the part of us that just wants what it wants. And we direct that all that desire, all that wanting, all that libidinous energy towards socially constructive ends, you know, instead. Uh, that gets sort of diverted and we build skyscrapers and rockets and trains going through tunnels and all that phallic stuff. That is the... <laughs> so contrasted against the pleasure principle, that's the reality principle. You have the pleasure principle, the part of us, all of us that just wants and wants and wants. 
And you have the reality principle that imposes rules and order. And as we start to get into this next major story arc, the doll's house, we meet desire and we learn about the vortex and we get to know dream better. This stuff might start seeming more applicable, right? So, you know, let's keep that sort of lens in mind. But there's another force that Freud speculates about, especially after World War I, and he sees all these shell-shocked soldiers suffering what would come to be thought of as PTSD, right? He sees them kind of reliving these same like traumatic experiences over and over again. And he sees other actions people take that don't really align with the pleasure principle or the reality principle. Things, you know, aggression, self-destructive acts. He sees people having experiences that aren't socially constructive and at the same time don't have the ability to produce any sort of pleasure. It's like they only produce pain, and he wonders why. And this is where Freud gets sort of his most far out. I mean, this is where he says, look, I have no science to back this up. I'm just throwing some ideas out there, and this is way weirder than the Oedipus complex. Because Freud starts thinking of pain as any state of nervous excitation, and pleasure as the reduction of of nervous excitation to a state of calm equilibrium. So this is a little different than how we normally think of pleasure and pain. Like pleasure, you know, we can think of excitement and like fun or something like that. But for but any sort of anything that 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 excites the nerves uh, for Freud here is thought of as a sort of pain and getting to that calm, peaceful state that is that is is pleasure. Uh, And there are all sorts of stimuli in the world that produce pain by this definition, obviously. There's external ones, you bump your head or stub your toe, and then there are internal ones, psychological and emotional pain. And we have defenses against this sort of nervous excitation. The important parts of our head, right, like are protected by like a thick skull and skin and all that. And internally, we have all these really complex and poorly understood tools to deal with pain, emotional pain. Um... We anticipate pain, right, in order to be ready for it when it happens, like to limit the shock that it causes. Uh, We re-experience painful moments in the hope that through repetition, we get used to it and it hurts less, all with the aim of reducing this traumatic excitement within us, all with the goal of moving towards this state of placidity. And Freud realizes, well, if life is full of nervous excitation, of pain, The ultimate placidity, the ultimate defense against pain, is a state of unaliveness. He says, If we are to take it as a truth that knows no exception, that everything living dies for internal reasons, that is, becomes inorganic once again, then we shall be compelled to say that the aim of all life is death, and looking backwards, that inanimate things existed before living ones. The attributes of life were at some point, at some time rather, evoked in inanimate matter by the action of a force whose nature we can form no conception. The tension which then arose in what had hitherto been inanimate substance endeavored to cancel itself out. In this way, the first instinct came into being, the instinct to return to the inanimate state. Okay, so This is really Freud at his most radical. He's claiming that we all have this... Most (laughs) cocaine Yeah, we all have this sort of idea, this this drive to return to this inanimate state. Um, The author Mark Fisher describes Freud's position here as the idea that all life is a region of death. So life is this strange and brief mutation And that one of the fundamental forces that drives us is the drive of and toward that state from which we all emerge and to which we all return. And I want to be clear that it's like not the only thing that drives us. It's not the only thing that matters. And uh, later thinkers have even expanded and changed what we mean by a drive. And to my mind, like life is certainly meaningful and valuable and important and worth protecting and fighting for. But it is there nevertheless, and it's something worth confronting and understanding and making peace with. And so to think of this, 
of things in this way helps me to understand how death, capital D death, can in some ways be thought of as a home a man longs to see after years spent as a captive. Told you to get weird there. <laughs> we'll let you all uh, reflect on that and uh, enjoy something pleasurable. Cup of tea or something, maybe? You're going to totally. need a unicorn chaser. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Go grab one and we'll see you soon. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Oh man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it, pause it, turn off the TV. Do, do you Shh, think she's gone? make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. All right. Well, everyone, that was our deep dive into issue eight, but we can't let you go without telling you our favorite panel and best non-Sandman character. I feel like picking who goes first here is going to be very key to making sure I have two very happy hosts here at the end. <laughs> so I'm going to say that Sean can go first picking the panel. Ashley will go first picking the character. Sean? Okay. All right. This, I mean, I'm not, so I've decided when I go first, no Sean sneaks. Because it's not fair to steal multiple ones from, from other people. Not going to do it. So I'm just going to choose one. Very difficult, I will note, because Mike Dringenberg's art here is just so amazing. No, it's it, like the the figures are just so gorgeously rendered. You know, they look like these sort of like almost like, like you know, Renaissance sketches or something like that. Right? In the way that even these dead bodies are, you know, laying around and things like that. So it's tough. But... Because we sort of touched on one that I was thinking about earlier, I <laughs> you see how hard I'm trying here not to do more than one? You're, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with one of the first pages. Uh, it is where Death and Dream are talking, and Death catches the soccer ball. Uh, that poor Franklin sent her way. That'd be page eleven for you all. It, it's where she's got like her, you know, her lips screwed up, and she's like so frustrated. <laughs> and I think I'm choosing that one just because, like, that is the most maybe joy panel <laughs> of this <laughs> issue. So this, this. Posture and making that face reminds me very much of my frustrated wife. <laughs> and so I'm going with that because of how much. I love it. Yeah. How much. I All love right, it. Ashley, where'd she going with? Sure. So that, that was going to be my second choice. My first choice nice. is back to where when the, the baby dies. Um, but when the mom is checking in on her child and, you know, doing baby talk. This would be page 19. And you've just got dream and death in the shadows behind her, like a horror panel. Yeah. Like like a horror comic. So you've got these looming figures behind her. And it's like, well, what's funny about this is someone will die. Uh, not the figure in question necessarily, but someone will die as would someone in a horror film. Um, but this is when she's it, she looks the most ominous. But she's just doing her job. Like this is just her, this is just her day job. So she's not even a like a a threat in the sense that she's being antagonistic anyway. She just happens to look scary in this moment. Unlike 
the panel that Sean referenced, where she's actually pissed off and probably is kind of scary <laughs> as the figure of death. So I just find it kind of comical um, that she looks the scariest when she's pretty much the most innocuous apart from just functioning in her role, but looks comical when she's actually angry. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, mine is going to be page 15 uh, at the end of the Harry saga, and it is the bottom right panel where you just get the left uh, side of Death's face um, with light hitting it, and the and the right side is in shadow. Uh, and I feel like it's invoking you as the reader to journey from the light into the dark. And I I really I really like how they did that. And and just what she's saying is now is when you find out Harry, and he's you know wondering if there's actually a heaven. And and I like the I like the balance of the 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 black and white there on that on that panel that's a great choice like shout out to well r.i.p malcolm jones the third i think you really have to give his those those thick black inks a lot of credit on that panel to convey uh all of that that you just said so just you know a real example of of how important an inker's work is in a book and yeah what an elegant moment there all right ashley so who you choosing I, I think my choice is pretty obvious considering I dedicated the majority of my <laughs> deep dives to him, but I got to go with Harry. Uh, he's boy, just someone, Harry. <laughs> I just, he's someone I would love to know in real life. He, I just feel mm, like he'd be mm. chock-a-block full of stories. And again, the way he greets death, uh, just everything about him, his whole demeanor draws me in. I could do a whole side issue uh, just of his, of his life. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to Ben sneak in before Sean, and I'm going to take Franklin. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. There was just something about Franklin. Just like I remember reading this when I was younger and just seeing like how he died and just like thinking about that. I'd be like, wow, there'd be such like a way to go out, hit by a car, trying to catch a ball, impressing a girl. You know, that's just uh, that's living life in the fast lane. And that's uh, that's where your co-host Ben hangs out for most of his time. So, Oh, boy. <laughs> Sean, <laughs> what do you got? Uh, okay, this is tough because I really also wanted to go um, with Harry because he's so dang lovable. Not going to choose the stand-up comedian. Didn't think her jokes were funny. I think no. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll be remembered more for the manner of her death than the quality of her jokes. Um, oh, gosh, what's left to go with? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the baby because yes. uh, he's a great, uh, really eloquent for an infant. And I respect that. Amazing. <laughs> I will note that none of us chose death. So that's still out there for you all to choose back at home, everybody. What do we go through on this issue on, on our deep dive, right? We talked about how death was created, the, you know, the model that was used for it. You know, but then, you know, Sean is really reminding us about, you know, the inking you know, and the penciling and just how all that is so important to create this really vivid and engaging and really, you know, the number one or number two character that, you know, comes out of uh, this entire series being introduced to us here in, in issue eight. We also talked more on the spiritual side, looking at the Shema, looking at the discussion between a man and his Ba or a dispute between a man and his Ba. And just thinking about, you know, how do those tie in? What do those mean? What are the connections that Neil Gaiman is asking us to meet? And then uh, Ashley made sure that we spent a lot of time thinking about Harry, thinking about <laughs> kind of who he was and, you know, his place. I mean, he gets, you know, two, you know, two full pages where we get to, you know, meet this character. And uh, we learned a whole lot about uh, what Flash was and kind of what it meant to patter Flash. Uh, and then Sean kind of, you know, wrapped it all up, you know, in a nice super ego type of way, you know, <laughs> bringing Freud in because that's where he wants to be there. Always, always finishing things off for us. So that was the issue today. Again, the main thing that I kind of take out of this is it's the introduction of an iconic character. And that's just always so cool when you finally get to see that actually come to life. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember... Never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media.